Today we are at the tail end of our Christmas sermon series, Christus Paradox, based on this hymn that we sang by Sylvia Dunstan. Maybe I wanted to get in on the action of this sermon series, Stand Between These Paradoxes of Jesus. There are 16 paradoxes in this hymn, and so you could really extend this all the way to Easter, but we promise we'll, we'll, we'll cut it off here today. Uh, today's paradox is that of death and life, the traditional language used around baptism. Today is baptism of the Lord's Day, um, always celebrated at the beginning of the year here, but it is also epiphany. Yesterday, January 6th, celebrates the three wise men being, uh, bringing uh, gifts to Jesus. So today we uh, stand in the midst of all of those waters, and we begin at the beginning of the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Mark foregoes Magi. He forgets about shepherds. He moves straight into Jesus's ministry um, with Jesus's baptism at the Jordan River. Uh, Mark skips Christmas altogether, but today I want to make this um, strange claim that this story of baptism is actually Mark's Christmas story. So, Listen for God's love descending upon us like a dove in this reading from the gospel. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan River. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am most pleased. Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. John the Baptist was a wild preacher in the tattered remains of what may have once been a suit coat. He eats whatever leftovers the wilderness might behold, and he lives beyond the edge of the city, out past Schaumburg and Naperville and Joliet, somewhere between here and Rockford or Daven Davenport or Galesburg, where houses and people are few and far between. Everyone from the rural area gathers to see John the Baptist, the soybean farmers and migrant workers and retired school teachers and volunteer firefighters. But people from the city gather too, the Uber drivers and yoga instructors and real estate lawyers and metric commuters. No one was turned away from John's wilderness spiritual oasis. No one could resist that wild preacher in tattered clothes, John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus. No one yet knew that Jesus would be famous, no one but those three wise men and a handful of shepherds. Mark starts 
his good news instead with this, that there's a preacher in the wilderness who turns no one away. Have you been yet? Your hairstylist asks at the salon, in the same way they might ask if you've been to Hamilton or seen the most recent Star Wars film. But they mean, have you been yet to see John the Baptist, his baptism of repentance, his forgiveness of sins? Maybe it's a perfect story for the new year. Shedding all the sins of 2017, we leave last year's burdens behind, asking God for a fresh start in 2018. Maybe you'd go too, out into the wilderness of Illinois, beyond the city, to see John the Baptist, seeking a new way, a new, you, a new year, a new you, as they say. Maybe at John's Riverside stand, you can submit your New Year's resolution the way Charlie Brown can visit Lucy's five-cent psychiatry booth. Maybe John listens to our hopes and dreams for the year to come. He hears our promise to take up yoga or read for pleasure or cook dinner at home more often or press the snooze button less. He listens to our promise to run a mile every day, to keep healthy snacks in the fridge, to put the phone away 30 minutes before bed. Maybe our New Year's resolutions are just that. At best, a request to be forgiven of our 2017 shortcomings. The times that we only had junk food in the fridge, ate mostly takeout, ran zero miles a month, scrolled through Facebook in bed late into the night instead of getting that much needed sleep. When we resolve to ride our bike to work or drink less alcohol, or when we vow at midnight on January 1st to write down what we're thankful for every day and place it in a jar so that we can read all of our gratitudes at the end of the year, when we do that, are we not repenting, saying that it could have been good if we'd done that this past year, and this year we want to choose the way of life, the way of life abundant. Maybe our New Year's resolutions tell us that 2017 wasn't all that perfect, and neither are we, but we have some hope for the time ahead of us. And first, we need some absolution, some forgiveness, so we can move into the new year. What John is offering, this repentance for forgiveness of sins, is so official-sounding, just a string of religious vocabulary words. It kind of loses something. But a new translation looks back at the Greek word for repentance, metanoia, metanoia, this Greek word, and translates it, instead of repentance, it says, change your hearts and lives. Change your hearts and lives. It's a word that has to do with turning around. There's something freeing in that translation, not a directive to repent, but an invitation to change your heart and your life. It makes repentance seem possible. Change your hearts and lives. That's what we do on New Year's Eve, right? As a whole society, we decide that it is, in fact, possible to change. Change and forgiveness. Those are the two things that John is offering down by the riverside. Change and forgiveness. Forgiveness can also, like repentance, feel like religious mumbo-jumbo, spiritual phraseology, mushy language that sheds all semblance of meaning as soon as it comes out of a pastor's mouth. So here's the deal. The Journal of Behavioral Medicine has done its research on forgiveness, and they say it seems worth it. It's worth the trip out to see John the Baptist, worth the trip out into the wilderness. 
Forgiveness, these scientists say, impacts the quality of your sleep, decreases your fatigue, can help decrease the number of medications you might need, can decrease your blood pressure, and in fact, can increase your lifespan. Sometimes forgiveness is easy. This weekend, my brother and his wife picked up a few things at the grocery for us. How much do I owe you, I ask them. Nothing, silly. They forgave my debt, just like that. But other things are more difficult to forgive. Do you remember that 1990s book, The Five Love Languages? The author, Gary, says that apologizing to your spouse is more than just saying, I'm sorry. Find out what the other person considers an authentic apology, he says, so that your apology is actually heard. It's not hollow or dismissed. Forgiveness is a choice, he says. It opens the door to new life. Forgiveness can take an instant. It can happen right now, even if it takes a little while for the emotional impact to set in. Forgiveness is a lifestyle, a way of life, not just a feeling. Forgiveness is vulnerable, selfless, healing. And sometimes it's not even about words. Sometimes forgiveness is tangible. One man in the midst of grief after an intense trauma was told that sometimes physical training is the best way to find forgiveness. And he decided to get a dog. He named her Shadow, and every morning before 6 a.m., Shadow would nuzzle him awake, and they would walk to the park. Instead of laying in bed, holding on to his grief, unable to forgive the one who caused him loss, he was outdoors, his body moving, the fresh air, and the natural endorphins coursing through him, the best medicine. Day by day, healing came. Forgiveness came not all at once, but slowly, like the hymn. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. Sometimes forgiveness is literally a wilderness experience. Tom and Anthony, military veterans, were in need of some healing that went beyond traditional medicine. They suffered from what experts call moral injury. Beyond PTSD, Moral injury is that spiritual or emotional impact that comes from doing or seeing something that violates your moral code. When someone has to use deadly force in combat, knowingly harming civilians, or when someone has to follow orders that are illegal or immoral or against Geneva Convention, or even if in the midst of serving in the military or afterwards, your belief about the necessity of war changes. Any of these can result in this kind of debilitating moral injury. Tom and Anthony both sought treatment for their PTSD, but after six years of therapy, were still unable to forgive themselves for something that they had done. There were war wounds that time alone could not heal. And so they decided to walk together from Milwaukee to Los Angeles in search of forgiveness, 155 days, 200, or 2,700 miles. Alongside traditional counseling, they used a meditative tr- um, technique called power breathing. They visited a Native American spiritual healer, and they found communing with nature to be restorative, opening their eyes to the beauty of the world that they had forgotten about in the face of their debilitating depression. 
was a journey into the wilderness of this country to find forgiveness. It was a path that feels so lonely, and yet it is shared by so many. Some of us seek forgiveness of the wilderness, the thing that John the Baptist was offering that day by the riverside. So no wonder people were flocking to him. No wonder he was the talk of the town. No wonder every gospel writer tells this story. No wonder, ultimately, John the Baptist is killed in the most undignified manner, his head served up on a platter for a princess. John was offering something powerful, something freeing and empowering and transformational, something healing. He was offering something at that liminal boundary between life and death, a forgiveness that gave life in the midst of a world that only offered death. And John knew that the one coming after him would offer not just this kind of forgiveness, but more. The one coming after him would offer life abundant. So there, in the wilderness, beyond the city, with everyone watching, John baptizes Jesus into this life-changing ministry. Mark is the only gospel writer who skips over Christmas. Luke has the shepherds, Matthew has the wise men, John has the prolegomena, the light shining in the darkness. The darkness does not overcome it. We can't have Christmas without any of these three pieces of the story, the shepherds, the wise men, the candle night singing of silent night. But Mark starts here instead, in what we might consider the middle of the story. And so here comes my thesis that, in a way, the Holy Spirit, descending like a dove, is Mark's version of the Christmas story. So hear me out. Joe Forrest recently told me how disruptive a dove is, at least one landing on you. It is literally an oh my God moment. Even an atheist ornithologist said oh my God when a dove landed on him. It's not so much spiritual, but shocking. And maybe things that are shocking can be spiritual, but I had never thought about how shocking this dove might have been, the one landing on Jesus at his baptism. I've always thought of doves as peaceful, right? The Holy Spirit floating softly down to land on Jesus' shoulder. But now all I can think of are street pigeons. Those doves that we see here in Illinois are street pigeons. The ones that have that rainbow shimmer, those gray birds flocking to half-eating cheeseburgers and picking over parking lot trash, landing on stone statues, and clustering under the L-track heated platforms. For millennia, doves, or pigeons really, have helped people navigate. They were domesticated around 5,000 years ago by sailors who, helped, who used them to find land. It was no accident that Noah sent a dove out, and she returned with an olive branch. Noah was simply using the best GPS technology available to him at the time to find his way home. It's as common for Noah to use a dove as it is for you or I to use Google Maps. Genghis Khan, Julius Caesar, Napoleon, all of them used doves to communicate. Napoleon's defeat at Waterloo in 1815 was famously reported by carrier pigeon. The news traveled from present-day Belgium across the English uh, canal to Count Rothschild. He was the first person in England to hear the news. In World War I, 
The Army Corps had a pigeon named Cher Ami, who saved 200 US soldiers by delivering a message just in time. And even after the invention of radio, when messages could be sent without the need for carrier pigeon, the Army still used them. During World War II, they had 250,000 carrier pigeons trained to send messages during times of radio silence. The white doves at weddings and funerals, they are usually specialized homing pigeons trained to fly back to the coop. It would look a little bit less elegant if you were to release a whole bunch of beautiful white birds at the end of your wedding only for them to bumble their way over to the wedding cake. Scientists still don't know why carrier pigeons can find their way home, and I kind of love it when scientists can't figure something out. It means there's still reasons to research and learn and study, and it's this mystery beyond mystery, something beautifully poised as a spiritual metaphor. Scientists think maybe pigeons use magnetic fields to orient themselves, or polarized light, or echolocation, or infrasound, but even extensive research has brought ornithologists up short. One year when my father-in-law was having trouble with chipmunks in his yard scurrying into his, his chimney, he set a humane trap and we went on a drive. It had to be more than five miles away in order to release this chipmunk too far from home to find his way back. But with a carrier pigeon, if you take them across the ocean, they can still find their way home. I know way too much about carrier pigeons now. I might have to get one and then train it to send messages to my brother in Hyde Park. So if you get a bird landing in your yarn and it's got a message, it might, it might be for me. Harry Potter has an owl, maybe I can have a pigeon. I don't know. All this to say, really, actually, something about God. The God who meets us in Jesus Christ, the God who meets us in the form of a dove at Jesus' baptism, that God is like the ancient doves who help us to find our way home. That God is like the pigeons who carry life-saving messages across impossibly far distances. Mark might skip over the Christmas story, but this is Mark's Christmas story. The dove, a celestial messenger, sent to show the way home to God in Jesus Christ. As ancient as John's, in the beginning was the word, and as bold as the angels who appear to the shepherds in their flock by night, and as bright as the Magi's star guiding them home. Catherine Keller is my favorite theologian, and she is here in tune with the physicality of God's appearance as a dove. She notices that God doesn't come to us as untouchable light or ungraspable wind or invisible breath, but God comes instead as like us, physical, communicating in a medium that we can understand, and doubly so. Both that human Christ and that heavenly dove speak to us of God's love, God's hope to communicate with us, God's ever always reaching out to us. Catherine Keller says, the very birdiness of the Spirit's activity plunges us into the earthy depths of the Spirit's flight within the world. I like that, the very birdiness of God's Spirit. God's love has wings. God's forgiveness has wings. God's presence is like Emily Dickinson might say, a thing with feathers. The dove shares with us God's message, 
these twin gifts of navigation and communication. God shows the way. God hears and speaks to us. God carries us home. In communication with God, we can find the way toward life-giving change and forgiveness and renewal. May it be so for you and for us and for this, our world, in these early days of 2018. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, amen.